The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, let's get started this morning. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you all being here this morning. Um, We're going to continue on the Israel topic this morning. You know, we're just going to keep going until, I don't know. (laughs) But, uh, and I I keep banging on this drum because with what's going on in Israel right now, the church is in a prophetic panic, crying out, you know, we're in the end times, this is the end of the world, you know, stuff's going on in Israel. And pulpits are putting out Zionistic nonsense that is causing confusion and fear. So I think we really need to talk about this, and we really need to understand what the Bible has to say about Israel and the times we're in. Now, before we get into Scripture this morning, let's talk a little bit about what's happening over there in the Middle East. Have you heard about the Israeli plan to ethnically cleanse Gaza that was released this last week? Okay, then you're going to learn something today anyway, all right? Israeli culture magazine, Mechomet, published on 28th of October, a leaked document by Israel's Ministry of Intelligence recommending the occupation of Gaza and a total transfer of 2.3 million inhabitants to Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. So this was leaked. I mean, it should, this shouldn't be a shock to you. We talked about this in the first thing we did on Israel. This is their plan. Get them out of that land, take over the land. But the document was issued on 13 October. It recommends that Israel evacuate the Gazan population to Sinai during the war. Establish tent cities and new cities in northern Sinai to accommodate the deported population. And then create a closed security zone stretching several kilometers into Egypt. The deported Palestinians would not be allowed to return to any of the areas near the Israeli border. So they, that, that's, this, this is their plan. It wasn't supposed to be released, but it got released. And now people know, okay, their whole point is they want those people out of there. They're trying to wipe out Gaza. They want them all gone. They're going to chase them over in, into Egypt. But Egypt says, no, no, you're not going to do that. Biden tweeted, our resident, tweeted this uh, October 29th. He said, I also spoke with President Adel Fattah al-Sisi, to share my appreciation for Egypt facilitating the delivery of humanitarian assistance to Gaza. We reaffirmed, that's President of Egypt and Biden, we reaffirmed our commitment to work together and discuss the importance of protecting civilian lives. Respect for international humanitarian law. They show no respect for that so far. And he says, ensuring the peninsula in Gaza is not displaced to Egypt or any other nation. Now, this is going to damage Biden's plan. I mean, this is going to damage Netanyahu's plan because Biden says, look, we're not going to let them displace these people to Egypt. And they care about what we think because we're putting a lot of money into what's going on over there. So that's their plan, but it's going to come into some problems right now. Uh, And they lay out in this document how they plan They said, first, they're going to bomb northern Gaza to drive everybody to the south. Then the troops are coming in from the north and just driving the people right out into the Egypt Peninsula 
never to let them back again. They've taken most of the land already. They're just trying to finish the job now, all right? Meanwhile, Israel has imposed a total siege on Gaza. I told you before, Gaza is an open-air prison. These people aren't free to come and go. They're locked up. Israel controls everything, their electricity, their food, their fuel, and they've cut all that off, all right? They've been bombing the place. So far, they say, the report is over 8,000 Palestinians, the majority of which are women and children. A lot of these people are Christian. And yet the Christians are rooting for the other side. And that's what really makes me sad. That's the sad thing about Zionism. In America, Christians are supportive of Israel. They're cheering the death of Palestine like they're bloodthirsty dogs or something. It's just sickening. American politicians are sending in support of Israel, standing in support of Israel, and sending Israel the tax dollars that they've stolen from us. So we're paying for this mess. Now last week, Netanyahu said in in a press conference uh, to the foreign media, he says, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says, he has no clue what the Bible says, I don't know where he's getting this information from, okay? There's time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war. A war for our common future. And at the end of the speech, he said, May God bless Israel, and may God bless those who stand with Israel. People, first of all, this is not a war, okay? You can't call it a war when one side has jets, tanks, the most well-trained army in the world, and the other side has sticks and rocks. That's not a war. That's shooting fish in a barrel, okay? That's what's going on right now, okay? Former Israel ambassador to the United Nations, San Gillerman, described Palestinians as horrible, inhuman animals. And this is what the Jews think of the Palestinians. They're not human. They don't have a soul, they say. They're animals. In a TV interview this week, uh, Gillerman said this. He said, he's puzzled by the concern over the fate in the ongoing Israeli war amid a tightened blockade on Gaza. He's puzzled. Why why is this bothering people? You know, he's puzzled by the concern of genocide of the Palestinian people. This is how evil they are. They're just, they don't even get it. Why would people care about all these people being slaughtered? But it seems like no matter what they do over there, the Zionist Christians stand behind them. You know, like, oh, we got to stand with Israel. Last week, Justin Bass, he has a PhD from Dallas Theological Seminary, so we know, you know, he's a dispensationalist. And I hear that he is Michael Heiser's replacement at the AWKNG School of Theology. All right, so supposedly this guy's taking over Heiser's spot at, that, at the teaching job at the school. He posted this on Facebook. Only one nation out of 195 nations on earth still speak the same language, worship the same God, read the same scriptures, and dwell in the same land as their ancestors from around 3,500 years ago. Paraphrasing Blaise Pascal, if you want evidence for God, look at the Jews. Okay, so he is saying that modern-day Israel is worshiping the same God that the Israelites worship. Yeah, what God is that? They're not worshiping the same God. It's not even close, okay? They don't use the Bible. They read the same Scripture. Well, maybe if he considers the Talmud Scripture... They don't read the same, dwell in the same land as their ancestors. Listen, we've gone over this so many times. They are no way related to the Israelites, okay? This is dispensational nonsense. Modern day Jews are evidence not for God, 
They're more evidence for the devil, I would think, and just the attitude, the way they care about people, the way they treat people. Again, if you're not a Jew, you don't have a soul. You are just an animal. That's how they feel. Last week in a video uh, entitled Max Lucado, Glenn Beck discuss end-time prophecies unfolding around us. Beck says this, We've got Gog and Magog for the very first time. And then Lucado adds, All players are in place. He goes on to say, The Jews repopulating Israel is the greatest miracle. (laughs) The Jews repopulating Israel is a miracle? No, it's not. The Rothschilds are behind it. It's no miracle. It just took a lot of money. And the way they're repopulating that area is because they're killing all the people that are in it. This is nothing. This is not a miracle at all. This is, this is sickening is what it is. So my goal, and keep hitting on this thing, is to try to clear up some of this Zionistic nonsense with the truth of the Word of God. And for our study this morning, I want to look at Romans chapter 11. Now, I want to look at Romans 11 because the dispensationalists, and this kind of puzzles me, they consider Romans 11 a stronghold. To them, Romans 11 teaches that Israel is going to be back as a nation again. God's going to restore them to the place they once were. I think it teaches the exact opposite, but let's look at it. All right, 11.26, And in this way, he says, all Israel will be saved. As is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Now, before we get into this verse, which is part of the dispensational stronghold, we need to consider this section as a whole. Romans 9 through 11 is what? We've talked about this many times. What would you call Romans 9 through 11? <laughs> it's a theodicy, okay? A theodicy is a defense of God. So Romans 9 through 11, Paul is defending God. He is vindicating God, he's giving a defense of God. That's what he's doing in these three chapters. Now, Romans 1 through 8, Paul has laid out God's sovereign plan of salvation in Yeshua, the Messiah. Well, the Jewish nation as a whole rejected Yeshua. That poses a huge problem for them. Because of their rejection of Yeshua, God has rejected them. Speaking to the leaders of Israel, Yeshua said this, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So he's, he's letting them know. He's talking to Israel. He said, listen, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you people. This happened during the transition period from 30 to 70 A.D. It was consummated in A.D. 70 when Yahweh destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, which was an everlasting destruction. Now, most of Christianity today believes that Romans 11 is a proof text that God is going to restore national Israel. And to those who hold to a dispensational position, they argue for Israel's continuation in the plan of God. Well, dispensationalism teaches that as part of the events leading to the millennium, ethnic Israel must return and be established in the Holy Land. All right, that's got to happen to them. And what's the main problem with this view? Well, as we've seen in the last three weeks, there is no ethnic Israel. Okay, These people are not related to the Jews that God brought out of Egypt. There's no relation at all. Now, despite this, Tom Constable, talking about Romans 11, writes this. He says, this chapter proves that God has a future for ethnic Israel, the racial descendants of Jacob. Well, we know that's false because we've already shown, the science today shows there is no connection with these people 
to those people, all right? There's no, they're not DNA, there's no DNA there to connect them. They're not descendants from them. And we have to understand that, so therefore, that kind of ruins their whole argument. Well, before we begin chapter 11, notice uh, how chapter 10 ends. It says, but of Israel, he says, all day long have I held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. This is a quote from Isaiah 65. And Paul is using this quote to say that all the prophecies, all the fulfillments, all the gospel that Israel heard was not believed by most of them. And Paul is saying in verse 21, Israel is without excuse for their unbelief. It's not so much a matter of ignorance, but obstinance. All right? They're a disobedient, they're contrary people. That's what he says about national ethnic Israel. 11, chapter 1. Now, <clears throat> we're going to go through this chapter, which normally, you know, I'll do a verse or two. So this is, we're going to go through at a speedy pace today. So if you want more detail on this, there's like five messages on our Roman series. You can go look at those and get them in detail. Like I said, I don't have time to park on every issue because we've got to move through this and try to keep it connected. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. <clears throat> so he starts out with, I asked then, and this, this reaches back not just to 1021, but to all the way back from 930 to 1021, which shows that Israel refused to believe in Yeshua. He says, has God rejected his people? By no means. In other words, they haven't believed, so does that mean they're rejected by God? <clears throat> now, by no means here in the Greek, this is the strongest Greek negative that there is. It's no, no, never, no way, impossible, absolutely absurd, never happening. That's what he means by no means. And whatever this phrase is used in Romans, it always means that this is a false conclusion based on a correct premise. Now the premise is, Yahweh has rejected the nation Israel. The conclusion is, Yahweh has cast away His people. Now though the premise is correct, the conclusion is wrong. Who are His people? Well, we see it in verse 1. We see this used again in verse 2. It has the idea of possession. They are a people of His own. They are a people that He called, a people that He predetermined to love, a people He chose, and He has not changed His mind. So who are His people? Is it the nation Israel? Many say that. That's what it's talking about. They say, well, He's talking about the nation Israel. They're His people, and He hasn't rejected them. But I think... This is a reference to the remnant in national Israel. Look at what Peter has to say about this phrase, his people. <clears throat> in Acts 3, 21 through 23, Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your people. Anybody know where Moses said that? It's a familiar scripture. This is Deuteronomy 18. All right. So Moses said, The Lord's going to raise up a prophet. And he said, He shall, you shall listen to whatever he tells you. All right, he's talking about Yeshua. That's the prophet the Lord's going to raise up. It's like Moses said, you should listen to him, do whatever he tells you. And it, is, it shall be that every soul that does not listen to him shall be cut off and destroyed from the people. All right, now here Peter is saying that those within national Israel who don't listen to Moses and believe in Yeshua will be destroyed from the people. In other words, if you reject Messiah, 
you will no longer be the people. Peter is saying that from here on, okay, this is just after Pentecost this happened, right after Pentecost he's giving this sermon, from, from here on, only those who follow Yeshua are the people. All those who reject Him, they're the enemies of God and they will be judged. So here's a clear indication <clears throat> that the coming of Yeshua is going to result in a new Israel arising out of the old. And for, from this point on, once, once Pentecost came, those who rejected Christ, they're no longer the people. All right? They are the enemies. They are cast off. They are rejected. I asked then, has God rejected His people? Now this does not say, has God rejected national Israel? God has not rejected national Israel, has He? No, it does not. It says He has not rejected His people. Because His people is not synonymous with national Israel. But it refers to the remnant within national Israel. So I'm saying that the people... It's not a reference to the nation Israel as a whole, but it's a reference to the remnant, the elect within the nation. And Paul uses himself as proof of this. And in the next verse, he's, or no, this verse, he says, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So it seems that Paul uses descendant of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin, to emphasize that he was truly descended from ethnic Israel. Paul himself is a forceful argument against the claim that God has rejected all Israelites. Paul was a believing Israelite, and he could say, I'm an Israelite, God has not forsaken me, therefore God has not forsaken all Israelites. Let's put this in a syllogism. Syllogism is a form of argument that they used to use when people used to think. So join with me and let's, let's figure this one out. Okay. The major premise, Paul's an Israelite. Everybody agree with that? Okay. Minor premise, God has not rejected Paul. We said that, right? Okay, conclusion, God has not rejected all Israelites. Because Paul was an Israelite and God accepted him. All right? Now, here's the question. Will the syllogism work if we change the word all in the conclusion to any? God has not rejected any Israelites. No, most Israelites of Paul's day had been set aside. Look, we see this... In 11.7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. Okay, we've got to get that. God has always had a faithful people within the nation, but it's never been the whole nation. We see this clearly in the ninth chapter. But he's saying here, the rest were hardened. Israel failed to obtain this. All right? So God has rejected most of Israel, but not all of Israel. All right? 9.6, you should be familiar with this verse by now, but it's a very important verse. It is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. We see here, there's two Israels. There's national Israel and true Israel, okay? Two, we have to get this here. It's so important what Paul is telling us. So you have the national, physical Israel, all those born into that tribe, all those who were circumcised, they're part of national physical Israel. But within there, there was a remnant. There were those who were looking forward to the Messiah. Those who believed the promises of God. And once Yeshua came, then this true Israel believed on Him with all others who were believing on Him. And that's the true Israel. National Israel's done. It's finished. It's gone. The, new, the true New Covenant Israel became the church. 
Now let me point out here something that I, I think is significant. Paul only uses the term Israel in chapters 9 through 11. You know, he doesn't use that term in 1 through 8 or in 12 through 16. It's only in the theodicy that he uses this term Israel. And the first time he uses it is here in 9.6. So the first time he uses Israel, he tells us there's two of them. True Israel and national Israel. Now, here's what I think is interesting. He uses the term Israel 12 times. 12 in Israel, that's kind of connected, right? You get that? 12 tribes. In the ESV, 10 of them are definitely referring to national Israel, but two of them are referring to true Israel. There's the one right here is referring to national and true, and we'll look at the, the other one a little bit later. So just, just keep that in your mind. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to that because it's important. All right? Earlier in the Theodicy, Paul quotes Isaiah 10.22. Oh, again, let me back up. we got national Israel. we got true Israel. All right? Those are the two. Now, later, or, I mean, earlier he quoted Isaiah 10 in, in chapter 9, verse 27. He's quoting Isaiah here. He says, But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Please, I'm going to bring this up many times, but hang on to that. Mark that down. Only a remnant. He said concerning Israel. He's talking national Israel. There's tons of them. They're like the sand of the sea. That's what he promised. They would be that numerous. But only a remnant are going to be saved. Hang on to that, because people use chapter 11 to try to tell you that all Israel is going to be saved. Well, how does that work with this, okay? This testifies of the rejection of a great body of Israel and of the election of a small number of them. This is the proposition which Paul began. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. Only a remnant are going to be saved. Hang on to that. Now to further explain how it was that God has not rejected His people Israel, He gives us an important historical example. The northern kingdom of Israel had fallen into apostasy. And it was so severe that Elijah the prophet felt like he's the only one left. He's the only person alive serving God, he felt. Okay? He said, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left. God. And they seek my life. They're trying to kill me. Lord, and there won't be anybody left, Lord. But what is God's reply to him? He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Yahweh has 7,000 men, his remnant, who have not worshipped Baal. Elijah thought he's the only person left in the nation. And God said, no, that's not so. i got 7,000 other worshipers. They've not gone into apostasy. They're not worshipping idols. But though Israel had rejected Yahweh, he had not kept, he says, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not given themselves to idolatry. Now the word kept here intensifies the divine action in other words, it's telling us that Yahweh did the keeping. He's keeping this remnant. The point Paul is making is that even during one of the worst periods of apostasy in Israel's history, Yahweh had still preserved a remnant for Himself who remained faithful to Him and to His covenant. Verse 11, he says, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So in Paul's day, the time of Paul's writing, he says he still has a remnant. There is a remnant, and he said it is chosen by grace. Literally, this is according to the election of grace. Now, the word chosen here is the Greek word ekloge, and it means divine selection 
election chosen. The remnant are saved not because they chose God, but because Yahweh chose them and they responded in faith. Just to make sure we understand that it's by grace, he says, and if by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You get that? That grace and works are mutually exclusive. You've got to work for it. It's not grace. Grace is a gift. Something you're given. Okay? Verse 7, he says, What then? Israel has failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. Now notice that it doesn't say what his people are seeking, they have not obtained. His people are the chosen, and they have obtained it, but the Israel has not. The ones who were chosen obtained, the word elect here has reference to, does not have reference to the theocratic nation, nor does it have reference to the kingdom of Israel as a nation. It has reference to the believing Jews, the individual Jews chosen out of the nation. All right? Israel, national Israel, failed to obtain what it was seeking. He says, the elect obtained it, but the rest, national Israel, was hardened. All the promises of God to Israel were being fulfilled in the remnant. And in Paul's day, the remnant was receiving what Israel sought after. What was it that the remnant was receiving? Well, they were receiving salvation in Yeshua. They're not receiving a physical kingdom. They're not receiving racial superiority. They're not receiving a physical redemption. He says they were hardened. The rest were hardened. This is the Greek porao, and it means to petrify. The form of it indicates that they were hardened by some outside power, some outside force, and that force is none other than God Himself. Israel was hardened by God. Now, hardened here is a divine passive. It is God who is the agent of the hardening. God has not rejected His people because He has always had a remnant. But He has rejected those who were hardened. Just as we're chosen is a theological or divine passive, so also is we're hardened. In other words, it's the Lord who chooses, it's the Lord who hardens. He went through that in chapter 9, stressing that point. Okay? Now, Paul backs up the fact that they're hardened with the Hebrew Scriptures. And he says in verse 8, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. They were hardened by God giving them a spirit of stupor. He blocked their ears, blocked their eyes. They couldn't see, they couldn't understand, they couldn't get it because they are hardened. All right? He says, the ears would not hear down to this very day. Now, the first half of this verse comes from Isaiah 29.10. The second half of the verse comes from Deuteronomy 29.4. And so what's interesting here is as Paul is citing from the law, Deuteronomy, he's citing from the prophets Isaiah, and then next he cites from the Psalms, which gives us all three divisions of the Hebrew Scriptures that the Jews were familiar with. He cites the prayer of David. He says, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. So David's prayer was for Yahweh to extract vengeance on his enemies, but Paul applies this to the Jews. Romans 11.10 says, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. 
All right, then in verses 11 through 15, we see the twofold purpose of God as it relates to the Jewish unbelief and the Gentile conversion. He says in verse 11, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, who's the they here? The they is corporate ethnic Israel as a whole. And we need to realize that when Paul speaks of Israel, he's not speaking of every single Jew, but rather he addresses them corporately without implying all of them, because there's exceptions, there's a remnant within there. Now, though Israel's transgression, through their transgression, salvation has come to the nations, he says. Before their stumbling, Yahweh dealt with the human race through the nation Israel alone. No Gentile could come to Yahweh unless they came through the nation Israel. Well, that's changed all. All that's changed now, as Yeshua made very clear in the Gospels. So how did Israel's sin bring Gentile salvation? Well, first and foremost, their sin led to the crucifixion of the Lord, which brought salvation. And he says, to make Israel jealousy, jealous. He says, this is an infinitive with a preposition, which means it indicates purpose. The purpose of Israel's stumbling was that the Gentiles would be saved, and the Jews, seeing their blessing going to the Gentiles, would be made jealous. So the unbelief of Israel is ordained to promote the salvation of the Gentiles, which in turn promotes Jewish jealousy, which leads to their salvation. All right? Now he says, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and to save some of them. This is important that you get this some here, okay? The use of this term is very telling. Paul's not expecting the entire nation Israel to be saved through his ministry. He understands the promise of Abraham was that there will always be a true seed, always be a remnant. And he said, I want to save some of them. And in verse 15 he says, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? The if here is a first class condition, could be translated since, for since their rejection. Now there here is national Israel. So he says their rejection and their acceptance mean from life from the dead. So rejection here is from the Greek word apoboile, and it means repudiation, to throw from oneself. Compare this with verse 2. Their rejection, and then in verse 2 he says, has God, God has not rejected His people. So we have a rejection in verse 15, but that's of national Israel. And he says in verse 2, he's not rejected his people. That's the remnant, those who are trust in Christ. As you compare these two verses, remember the principle of Romans 9, 6, they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So Yahweh has not rejected his people, the remnant, but he has rejected Israel. We've got to get that. He has rejected Israel. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. All right? You're sharing in that root. Who or what is the root? N.T. Wright says this. The Messiah, most probably, I like that he puts that in there. Now, I'm not really sure, but most probably, the root, Messiah is the root through whom the tree now gets its life. I have a problem with this, because if Messiah is the root, then the Gentile believers are disassociated from Israel and their Hebrew roots. 
I would say that the root is Abraham and the promises Yahweh made to him. Now, you can disagree with me if you want. That's okay, okay? Look at Isaiah 51, 1 and 2. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you are hewn and to the quarry from which you are dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, and I might bless him and multiply him. See, it all goes back to Abraham. And Tom Holland writes this. He says, Paul saw its root to represent the promises made to Abraham and its branches to represent the spiritual offspring, believing Jews and Gentiles who are justified and made holy by the same faith as their father. So I think it's better to see the olive tree as the olive tree is the people of God, which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, but the root is the covenant promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and the tree is the true believing of every age who trust in those promises. So I see the root as Abraham and the unilateral covenant that God made with him, and the olive tree is the people of God, which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, through the analogy of the olive tree, Paul shows that the Messianic promises were for one people of Yahweh, composed of two separate and distinct national origins. The olive tree represents all believers, Jews and Gentiles. They're in this tree together, and they make up the one people of God. He says in verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, now he's speaking here about Israel, some of these Israeli branches, they're broken off, and again, some is a, you know, exaggeration there. Uh, you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in, speaking to the Gentiles, you're grafted in among others, and now you share in the rich, the nourishing root of the olive tree. Again, some here is an understatement, some of the, the majority of Jews failed to believe, so most of them were broken off. Those of ethnic Israel who did not believe that Yeshua was the Messiah, they're broken off. They're not part of that tree. He says, you now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So Gentile believers become partakers with the Jews in the rich root. The word share here is from the Greek word sunkoinonos, which means a share, a fellow worshiper, together with them in the rich root of the olive tree. With them is a reference to believing Jews. So we become partakers of the rich root of the olive tree. Now, you've heard people talk about replacement theology, and this is what dispensationalists scream. Oh, you're, you're talking replacement theology that the Gentiles, the church, replaces Israel. No, we became partakers with the remnant of the Abrahamic covenant. God didn't replace the Hebrew tree with the Gentile tree. Okay, He didn't go out and plant a new tree. He grafted us into the Hebrew tree. This is, not, this is not replacement theology. This is fulfillment theology. The church is the fulfillment of the promises that Yahweh made to Israel. The root now supports two types of branches, cultivated and wild, and together they are one tree. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root. The root supports you. The grafted shoot is sharing the same rising sap as the remaining original branches. The Gentiles are totally dependent on the covenant which God entered into with Abraham and the promises he made to him. And faith in Christ is the link to those promises made to Abraham. Faith unites us to the nourishing root of the olive tree, which is the promises of God. It says in verse 24, For if you were cut off, 
from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature. You normally wouldn't take a wild shoot and put it on a cultivated tree. You'd do the opposite, okay? A cultivated tree. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? All right? So the natural branches, who are those? Those, that's Israel. These natural branches are going to be grafted back into their own olive tree. People, this is not speaking of national restoration of physical Israel. They, these are Jews, but they are being grafted into the same tree as the Gentiles are in. It's talking about ethnic Jews coming to believe in Yeshua, the Messiah. And when they do, they're grafted back into that tree. If they don't believe in Yeshua, they're not going to be part of that tree. All right, so this is the remnant of Israel. They're trusting Christ. They're being grafted back in to that olive tree with the rest of us. And then in verse 25 and 26, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So this little phrase here, and all Israel will be saved, it's only five words in the Greek. But upon it have been built multiple theories about Israel. All right. And as I said, this chapter is a dispensational stronghold, which for the life of me I can't understand because it doesn't support their position at all. Um, but this is one of their most important verses because they say, see, God's going God's to restore Israel. They're all going to be saved. This is going to happen in the future. Now, through the analogy of the olive tree, Paul shows that the Messianic promises were for one people of Yahweh composed of two separate and distinct national origins. The olive tree represents all believers, both Jews and Gentiles, are in this tree, and together they make up the one people of Yahweh. From this analogy, Paul writes, lest you be wise in your own eyes. Now, lest here is from the Greek word gar, which just joins it with what precedes. Paul is saying that this passage explains what has already been said. I see this as referring to the olive tree and the union of Jew and Gentiles into one tree, which he calls a mystery. So now I want to explain that to you. He says, lest... You be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. There's a lot of different views on what the mystery is, but I think the Bible explains it pretty clearly. Paul, in the same book, in chapter 16, 25, says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel, and the preaching of Yeshua the Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings. So a mystery is simply something that was hidden in the past. You couldn't know this in the past, but now it's been revealed. The word translated mystery is the Greek word musterion. Vine says this of musterion. In the New Testament, it denotes not the mysterious, but that which being outside the range of unassisted natural apprehension can be made known only by divine revelation and is made known in a manner and in a time appointed by God, and to those only who are illuminated by His Spirit. In the ordinary sense, a mystery implies knowledge withheld. Its scriptural significance is truth revealed. So the mystery is simple. The mystery is this. Jew and Gentile are brought together now in one body called the church. See, the Tanakh spoke about Gentile salvation. The Tanakh spoke about Jewish salvation. But the Tanakh never fully revealed that these two would be brought together in one body, the body of Christ. The church, 
Gentiles are now seen experiencing salvation in the Tanakh. It is always in the context of Israel. In the past, when Gentiles got saved, they had to get saved through Israel. All right, They had to join with Israel. They had to be circumcised. They had to go through all the rituals. That's the only way you could do it. Well, the mystery is Jew and Gentiles are now in Christ, both in one body. They're fellow citizens, and the Gentiles no longer have to join themselves to Israel. They just have to trust Christ. This is what Paul said in Romans 11, 17-24 about the olive tree. Jews and Gentiles are grafted into the same tree, sharing the same root. That's the mystery. God has one people. The Jews wouldn't have liked this, okay? The Jews back then almost felt like the Jews now. We're not, Gentiles aren't people. They're dogs. They're, you know, they don't have a soul, whatever. Look at Romans eleven twenty five. 25. He says, now he says this, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now, this is where you've got to get into the Greek if you're going to understand what's happening here, okay? Partial here is an adverbial, is adverbial, and it modifies has come. It doesn't modify hardening. And it should read, a hardening has come in part to Israel. People, the hardening isn't partial. It's happened to part of Israel. You understand that distinction? In other words, the, the hardening is not partial. It just happens for a while. It's only happening to part of Israel. Not all Israel's hardened. Part of them are hardened. All right? And this is what Paul said in verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So Israel's been hardened. Now please notice that the elect obtained it. The remnant of God, those who trust Christ. That's Israel. They're hard. The, the rest is Israel. All right? They're the ones who are hardened. They don't, they don't get in on this. So part of Israel is hardened, and that part is the great majority of them. He's just saying that the hardening basically is not complete. There are some who have been saved out of their total depravity and brought into the knowledge of the Lord Yeshua. In other words, he's saying the same thing he said in verse 5, which is so too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. There's a remnant in Israel, true believers that God has chosen. Now remember what Paul said. If there is no partial hardening of Israel, then there's no Gentile salvation. So Israel's sin brought about Gentile salvation. Let me ask you this. What else did Israel's hardening bring about? It brought about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which brought an end to the Old Covenant mode of existence and brought into full consummation the New Covenant. Judgment had to come upon Israel because of their sin. He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. All right, what does he mean until? Again, we've got to dig in the Greek to understand this. The Greek phrase used here is akrehos. The phrase means even unto a point. Thayer says it's used of things that actually occurred and up to the beginning of which something continued. It's a point of reference, not a point of cessation. If you look at some of the other uses in the New Testament, which we don't have time to do right now, but I encourage you, go to the website, go to Romans 11, you can dig into this. I get into great deal here, de detail here showing other places where achrehos is used to show you that it's not, it's not the end of things. All right, We can read our text, A hardening has happened to part of Israel, even to the point where the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So it's not saying that Israel's hardening stops when the fullness of the Gentiles happens, and that's really important here, okay? 
Now, what is the fullness of the Gentiles? What's he talking about? Bob Deffenbaugh writes, who's a dispensationalist, the fullness of the Gentiles refers to that time when the day of Gentiles ends and the restoration of Israel begins. Typical dispensational theology. You know, God, we're in a timeout right now with the church. In other words, God made these promises to Israel. They didn't, they rejected them. So God's like, what do I do now? I got to come up with another plan. So he came up with a plan with the church. And now, you know, so time stopped for Israel. Now he's going to go back to Israel when he gets rid of the Gentiles. And we go back and dealing with them. All right. So he sees the fullness of the Gentiles as signaling the removal of Israel's hardness. But that's not what the text says. Paul has already said, only a remnant will be saved. I can't stress that enough, okay? It's a remnant. Now, the form of the word here indicates that they were hardened by some outside power, some outside force, and that force is none other than Yahweh Himself. Now, think about this with me. Paul says, the elect obtained it, okay? The elect obtained it, the rest were hardened. The elect obtained covenant membership, but the rest would be those who were not chosen from eternity past, and since they were not chosen, they will not they were chosen to be hardened. And this hardening is a permanent state which will bring judgment. Those of Israel who are hardened will always be that way. So the fullness of the Gentiles is not going to change that at all. Now most commentators see the fullness of the Gentiles has come in meaning the full number of the Gentiles. In other words, we got all these Gentiles we need, that's it, we're closed. Now, the NIV here has full number, that's a bad translation. The contemporary English version has complete number, that's also a bad translation. The word fullness here is the Greek word pleroma, and it means completeness. It's the same word that Paul used in verse 12 where he says the full inclusion mean. So fullness as meaning the full number of the Gentiles, all right? Full inclusion is the same word as in our text. It's the word pleroma. And here it's talking about Israel. The fullness of the Gentiles coincides with the fullness of Israel. I think that fulfillment here is referring to the fullness of their salvation that was to come in the age to come. This happens at the parousia of Christ. The fullness of the Gentiles has to do with their perfection in Christ. It has nothing to do with numbers. It is talking about their maturity as the body. They come into fullness. They come to their full maturity at this time. All right? He says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, again, this is the main issue we want to deal with here. We have to answer a couple of questions here. Who is all Israel? Is it all national Israel? Is that what he's talking about? Who's he talking about? How's he using Israel? When will its salvation occur? When does this happen? And thirdly, how will it be accomplished? All right. Now, dispensationalism says that at the end of the church age, the church will be raptured out, and God will once again begin to deal with the nation Israel. And during the tribulation, many Jews will be saved, and in the millennium, there will be a time of Jewish dominance. They say that, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, refers to the being restored as a nation. People, here's what you have to understand. There is nothing in this text about national Israel being restored as a nation. And as we have said, those who are not chosen are hardened, and that's the end of it. They're going to be hardened. God hardened them, they're going to stay hardened. Many commentators see this, see an insoluble contradiction here between Romans 9 and 11. And they should, okay? This is because they see chapter 9 insisting that salvation is promised only for spiritual Israel. 
And that should be clear as you go through 9. But they see 11 arguing that ethnic Israel will be saved. Okay? So we have in 9 only a remnant, and then we have in 20, 11, 26, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Which is it? Is it all, or is it a remnant? That's where the contradiction comes in. Paul's clearly said, only a remnant and all Israel. So that, that can't mean national Israel. This is a contradiction. He's not only saying that, if a remnant, it's not only just, you know, all Israel. It can't be that, because he's talking about national Israel, out of national Israel, there in verse 27, a remnant's going to be saved. And then he says, all Israel will be saved. That's kind of a huge problem. Now, remember what I said earlier about Paul's use of Israel in chapter 9 through 11? Remember I said he uses it 12 times? Well, in his first use of it, he tells us there are two Israels, and then all the other uses of the word refer to national Israel. Look them up. They refer to national Israel. And then the last one here in our verse in 11.26, I think is referring to the remnant. The all Israel is the remnant of the house of Israel, the remnant of the house of Judah, and all believing Gentiles. This is all here. All Israel. In this way, he says, all Israel will be saved. Okay, what is all Israel? Well, all Israel is all who call upon him. He's referring to true Israel. That's all Israel. All who, call upon, all who share the faith of Abraham. Paul has been redefining Israel all through this letter. And again, the first time he uses it, he uses it referring to the true Israel, and then he's using it here referring to true Israel. And in other places, it's national. All Israel is all of true Israel. It's all spiritual Israel. That's the only way you can look at this in this text without the contradictions that you come up with. All right? It's all those who are in the olive tree. Verse 26 begins, and in this way. Now, this is an adverb, huto, and it can be translated in this manner. All Israel will be saved. Huto can refer to what precedes or what follows, but it seems logical here to connect it with what follows. In this manner, he says, all Israel will be saved by the deliverer that comes out of Zion. Now, as to the question when, when will all Israel be saved? It happens at the parousia. This text is conflated from Isaiah 59.20 and 27.9, and it's a reference to the second coming. This is one of those places where if you don't know what time it is, you're going to miss what Scripture is saying. He says, all Israel will be saved, not future to us. It happened at the return of Christ, which happened in AD 70. Preterism is more than an eschatology. It's a hermeneutic. It helps you interpret the Scripture. So when are they going to be saved? At the second coming. He says, when a deliverer comes out of Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And then how? Well, how is Israel going to be saved? How is all? Is it national? Is it political? What's he talking about? No, Paul is praying for their salvation. And here Israel is saved. And in 1013, he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's nothing political here, people. Eternal life was a condition of the age to come. So at the return of Christ, Israel, both houses, received their salvation. The fullness of the Gentiles also received their salvation in its consummated form, in its fullness. The Deliverer will come out of Zion. He will banish ungodliness. Now in the Tanakh, the Deliverer is clearly Yahweh. But for Paul, it's Yeshua. Because as we've said over and over, Yeshua is Yahweh. He is the God of Israel. Believer, 
National Israel has fallen, never to rise again. God put an end to national ethnic Israel in AD 70. There are no ethnic Jews today. We talked about that. They've done the DNA. They've done the test. There's no ethnic Jews today. There's none who can connect themselves with any of the 12 tribes. There's nothing who can connect themselves with that land. And then we also said there's no religious Jews today because they're not, none of them are keeping the Mosaic Covenant, which involves sacrifice and a priesthood and a temple. They don't have any of those things, so they're not doing that. All right? Very clearly, Paul says, only a remnant will be saved. And then later says, all Israel will be saved. Did he change his mind? No. He's defining the remnant. It, this is all Israel's, all who trust in Christ, all who call upon the name of the Lord. There's one people of God, and it's those who believe in the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Believers have no connection, no obligation to modern-day Israel. Israel is committing war crimes. They're committing genocide, and they need to be stopped, not supported. But on October 18th, 97% of the U.S. Senate voted to support Israel unconditionally with weapons and military aid. People, this should make you sick to your stomach. Your money, your tax money, is going so they can kill Palestinians who have no choice. They're not fighting. They're not, it's not a war. How, why do we need to support Israel? Israel has so much over there already. Why do we have to get involved in this and support them? It's just sickening, people. Let me close with this. Who's a liar? I'll tell you who a liar is. It's he who denies Yeshua is the Christ. People, listen to me. This is all those who claim to be Jews. If they say they're a Jew, they're saying they're denying that Yeshua is the Christ, right? So they're a liar. And he said, this is Antichrist. Any believer supporting these Antichrists should be ashamed of themselves and should repent. Christian Zionism is blasphemous. And to stand in the pulpit and tell Christians, you've got to support these people, these people who are slaughtering another group of people just so they can take over their land. But we think somehow in our minds, that, well, they're God's people, we've got to defend. No, they're not God's people. They have no relationship to God at all. They're Antichrist. The Bible's very clear on that. So get straight on the Scripture and let's pray for those people in Gaza who are suffering. I mean, the horrendous stuff that's going on. A lot of videos coming out of Gaza that showing you exactly what is happening over there, and it's, it's not pretty, people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That's because Lord, I thank you. Jeff is so out of town I, for the Lord, next six weeks. I don't know weeks. how dispensationalists will use chapter so, 11 uh, to support their view. Five weeks left? Paul said so clearly, so strong, only a remnant. So if any of you play the drums, you can sit in on uh, So all of Israel is all part of the remnant. Father. I mean, how hard could it be? Help us understand that. Sticks, right? Help us to share with our <laughs> Zionistic dispensational friends the truth of the Word of God, that they may be set free from this I'm feeling kind of old today. That we've got Cassidy's to stand turning 18 tomorrow. These murderous people. She's five years old. Lord, thank you for your grace to here. us. Father, I, I just ask you to bring peace over in that Middle I East. Lord, all the, where, I don't know where all this time went. Huh? China and it's Russia and Iran get involved, and it becomes way blown out of proportion. Give us grace, Lord. Thank you for your love for us. Amen. Okay, comments, questions. You know, it seems to me that uh, Paul makes clear there's a mystery revealed. He you know, makes that clear in the New Testament, and that's it's like an inspired 
commentary of the Old Testament. Exactly what it is. Which should affect the way we read the Old Testament. Right? <laughs> so it just seems to me that you, as you read the Old Testament, that's something you should be seeing. It actually is there. Could you say that, that that's there, it just wasn't clear? Well, I used to teach that there's nothing new in the New Testament. But I think there is something new because the mystery wasn't revealed until the New Testament and that it's new. Jew and Gentile, one body in Christ. So that's, you know, I think that's pretty important. But that is a hermeneutic of how we read the Old Testament. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a, you can read the Old Testament. If you don't use the new, you're going to be confused, you know. The Lord said, out of Israel I called my son. Okay, well, that's talking about the nation Israel. But then you get in the New Testament and it refers to Christ. And that's the inspired commentary, you know, on that. God called his son from Egypt. You know, back in the, and so, yeah, we have to, the New Testament is the inspired translation. And without it, we're going to be in some trouble, okay? Trying to understand what's been going on there. Yes? Uh, I learned this week, I didn't know that Israel and the United States are trying to build a canal that rivals the Suez Canal called the Ben Gurion um, Canal Project, and it would have two lanes and make billions for Israel and America. So, they need that strip of land in Gaza. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's, I haven't heard that, but that's not surprising to hear. I mean, they've wanted that from since 1948 when they moved in there and started slaughtering Palestinians. They want it all. The world is the world's view of it stopped them. They said, no, you can't do that. Those are people. You can't just run them out. You can't just kill them all. And so they had to back off, and they've been dealing with it ever since, wanting to get rid of them. Then they come up with this plan. Well, now the world knows their plan, so it kind of puts a... A kink in their plans because they don't want to be the bad guy. You know, they've been they spent a lot of money to uh, you know through the media to make sure that they're always looked at in favorable light. Okay, and again, remember, media is owned by the Jews. Okay, the banks are owned by the Jews, so they're kind of putting out what they want you to hear. So that's why you know if you're listening to the mainstream media, I don't know why, unless you're looking for some laughs or some jokes, you know, because they don't. They're sure not putting out any truth, all right? But, you know, what's interesting today is if you side with Palestinians, you feel like you're on the wrong side because all the left is siding with them. And you're like, what, am I on the wrong side here? What's going on? You know, I mean, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I hate to be in agreement with her, but, you know, I mean, the truth's the truth, okay? And so it's, it's just kind of a weird situation. And they're saying, oh, you're, you're a terror supporter. Palestinians aren't terrorists. Hamas may be. But again, remember where Hamas came from. Israel created Hamas for their own purposes. All right, got a comment from Norm here. Norm says, thank you so much for continuing to speak the truth about Israel. The mystery of Israel made me sick. I cannot believe the propaganda of the Zionists. Yeah, he's talking about the movie, The Mystery of Israel, that I recommended last week. He, he said, I can't believe the propaganda of the Zionists. The church is asleep, ignorant, and loving it. Ignorance is bliss. Certainly applies here. Forget Christ. They're more interested in the coming of the Antichrist and the end of the world and the utopia ruled by Jews. Romans 11 is salvation by race, not grace. I meant misreputation of Romans 11. Right. The misreputations of Romans is salvation by race, not grace. And that's Again, it's a great misrepresentation. Uh, Annie says, such a great message. Thank you, Annie. Appreciate you watching. 
Dana says, hi, David, thanks for the message. Do you have any recommendations on things or how we can share this effectively, share with our dispensational brothers and sisters who don't seem to want to listen to the teaching? Yeah, I would assume that, I mean, not assume, I would wish that you would share these messages with others. You know, ask your dispensational friend, hey, would you listen to this message and just, you know, see if they're even willing to give it a try and listen to it and see what's going on. But again, for the most part, they're so blinded that it's just all about Israel. And, you know, the the majority of uh, mega churches out there, this is their message, you know, Zionism. So it's a predominant thing. But, you know, we don't know what's going to happen unless we try to share with people, you know. Open their eyes. Uh, John writes, Pastor David, thank you for this precious gold, double, triple, refined in the fire glory. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Appreciate you watching. Greetings from Ohio, Pastor. Love your videos. I wonder if you could do one on the way dispensationalism hangs itself hangs itself on we interpret... Oh, everything literally hermeneutic. You know, if you go to our website and use the search engine and type in dispensationalism, you'll get everything I talked about. And we've dealt with that. You know, they do use a literal hermeneutic where everything is just what it says. You know, so we got all these locusts coming out of a pit and all this crazy stuff. All right, the obvious one being this generation. <laughs> Other one being the paradoxical insistence of an everlasting land covenant <clears throat> that we are told by science and scripture that the earth itself is not everlasting. So, <clears throat> all right, I think that's, yeah, so there, we got a lot on dispensationalism, you know, on the website, and a lot of a lot of messages on Zionism. If you go in there and look up Zionism, trace that out, you'll see what we had to say, you know, about that. But it's just, I think at this time we're, we're realizing how bad bad theology is, because people are just getting sucked into this and they're just, again, it, it so grieves my heart that people are standing with Israel who are just nothing but murderous butchers going in and killing these Palestinians. You could, and, and this has not just happened, people. You know, they say, well, people want to decide, well, Hamas went in and, first of all, Israel planned that whole thing. It was a false flag. Israel did it to get public opinion on their side so they could wipe it out, all right? But this has been going on for years and years, all right? Again, Gaza is an open-air prison. Israel controls it. The Israelis go in there and they torture these people. I mean, literally torture them. They kill them. They shoot them. You can see videos of this. They do whatever they want to do in Gaza. There's no resistance. And if a 10-year-old kid throws a stone at them, they lock them up, put them in prison. They control this. They hate the Palestinians. Again, they don't think they have a soul. They don't think they're people. They're animals. So that gives them the right to do whatever they want to to those people. And, uh, you know, as horrible as it is, it, it's, I think it's way worse when the Christians are behind the evil, murderous Israelites pushing this nonsense. And again, it's not all the people of Israel, it's the leadership that's over there, okay? It's the cabal. They're behind all this. They want this land grab. They really want World War III. That's what they're shooting for. They want that so they can, you know, reset the population the way they want it. 